0: Good morning, if you will, open your Bibles or your Bible app to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and the word from the Lord this morning will be from verses 12 to 21. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. I don't know if you've done this yet, but... um, last couple of times that I've read scripture. I've gotten the audience to participate a little bit, but at the end of our scripture reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you would, please say, thanks be to God. How about that? So at the end of it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will say, amen. Let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. The Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, Not that I have already obtained this, the resurrection of the dead, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, and here's why. Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize and the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many who have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself? This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray together. Dear God, as your word has gone out, we pray that your spirit would come that would transform us, that it, our minds would be renewed, that You would help us to see that our citizenship is in heaven. Help us to be faithful while we await our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to a body like His. Help us keep on pressing on to make it our own. And help us to do this in the power knowing that we press on to make this our own because You have made us Your own through the death of Your Son, Christ. May He be glorified today through the voice of Your servant, Andrew, as He comes and preaches to us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So keep your Bibles open there to Philippians
1: 3, and we'll finish up this... This chapter today, um, next Sunday, we'll, we'll have Compassion Sunday. And uh, again, be be praying about uh, that opportunity. Um, even if it doesn't result in, in child sponsorship for you or your family, there's, there's some amazing things that we'll be hearing next week and some good opportunities there as well. And then two weeks from today, uh, our, our youth pastor candidate, uh, Tim Forsyth, will be with us. He'll be preaching that Sunday, May the 1st, and, uh, and we'll be voting that day on his candidacy as our as our next youth pastor. And so be, please be in prayer for that as well for Tim and his family as they uh, prepare for that day and as we face that important decision in the life of our church. We're in this series called Gospel Joy. And what we're talking about here in these days is is the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word gospel means good news. And the gospel as All good news should produce a joyful reaction in the recipients. It's just human nature that when we receive good news, we share it and we share it joyfully. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, the best news ought to spur us on in sharing, not out of guilt or shame, but out of our love for him and our gratefulness for what he did for us at the cross. So that's where we're talking about when we, say, when we say gospel joy. But in the book of Philippians, four short chapters, 104 verses, the, the Apostle Paul is, is showing us the links, the definitive connections between the gospel, the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and our abiding joy. Where do those two things connect? Where does the rubber meet the road in terms of gospel joy? And so here at the end of chapter 3, what we see is him talking about what I've entitled today, Joy in the One Thing. And what we're going to see here is the Apostle Paul is laying out for us this pathway to joy, which comes through what I would call a single-mindedness, a singular focus. So here's the truth for today that's going to guide us in our time in the Word that this gospel joy comes from a single-minded focus on Christ. The problem for so many of us, I'm going to address the problem from the very, very beginning this morning. The problem for so many of us is that we live with a divided mind and a divided heart. We are focused on many things and yet not really focused on anything. And so we... We pigeonhole our lives in different ways. We, we focus when we're at work on what's happening at work. We focus when we're at home on what's happening with our family. And we are divided into so many different areas. And, in our, and our lives are divided up into so many different ways that we really aren't focused on much of anything. We're here, there, and everywhere and really nowhere. And what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's bringing a clarity at the end of this chapter to what will bring into our lives this true and abiding joy of the gospel. And it's this single minded focus on Christ. And so I'm going to talk to you today in these two paragraphs at the end of this chapter. We're going to talk about the race and the reality. That's my outline for today the race and the reality. So let's talk about the race first, verses 12 through 16. He speaks about the race and he says, one thing I do. Now, if you're like me immediately, that begins to spark a little bit of conviction because not many of us can say I'm all about one thing. In fact, if I if I were to ask someone who knows you well to define your one thing, what what is so and so all about? I me? Mean, what's their What's there one thing if you were to if you were to name it? For some of you in this room, as somebody might could could answer that, but for many of us, it'd be well, you know, I don't really know. I mean, he enjoys this and he he likes that. I see him doing this and this is, he spends his money over here and over here and, I, and his time here and there, and I don't really know what the one thing is, for the Apostle Paul, it was without a doubt there was one thing that was his focus, and you're going to see it as we move through this. So let's look at it together Uh, there in verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He's talking about the, the fullness of Christ, his resurrection power. He said, I've not arrived just yet, but here's what he says, but what I do, one thing I do. One thing I do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. And we're going to talk about what the goal is, what the one thing is here in just a moment. But get in your minds first and foremost that this race that he was describing here is all about one goal. One thing he says, I do. The first thing we to understand about racing Whether this was a foot race or a chariot race is kind of disputed among those who study the Bible. But regardless, whatever we know about racing, one thing we know is this, that racing requires a forward focus. Racing requires a forward focus. There have been many races over the years that have been lost because the one in the lead looked back. Or because the one in the lead looked to someone who was to their side and then stumbled. Because they lost focus and began to look on those around them or those behind them. They lost their footing and they fell in the race. And that imagery is what the Apostle Paul is leading us into here. He's trying to get into our minds this illustration of the race and saying just as if you were running in the Olympic Games and you were were trained to keep your eyes on the prize, keep your eyes on the finish line, keep your eyes on the goal. So that is the calling of the Christian life. Racing requires a forward focus. But for so many of us, We are held captive by our past. Notice what he says. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. You say, how in the world do you do that? You say, Pastor, I don't don't think you understand what's happened in my past. I don't think you understand the, the abuse that I've encountered. I don't think you understand the broken relationships that are littered on the trail behind me. I don't think you understand the power of this addiction that's held me for so many years. I don't think you understand, and I can say to you, I probably don't. But we serve a God who understands completely. He understands exactly what your race requires. And he is saying to you today that the only way that you will run in this gospel joy that's being described, the only way that you will run this race with joy and with victory is if you're focused on what lies ahead. I love what Warren Wiersbe said describing this. He said, we break the power of the past by living for the future. We cannot change the past. We can change the meaning of the past. And there is tremendous energy in the present power of a future hope. But see, here's how so many of us, here's how so many of us end up trying to run the Christian race, trying to live the Christian life. We are captivated by our past. So many of us, we can't even get past what happened in the past. And instead of forgetting it, by the way, I want want you to understand the word here. When he says forgetting what lies behind, don't get the wrong idea. This is not some kind of spiritual amnesia. Okay, this is the same kind of word that the Old Testament uses when it says that God forgets our sins. This is not a a picture of, if you were to go to God and say, hey, remember when I screwed up really big back then that God would go, what are you talking about? I don't remember that. This is not divine amnesia that's taking place here. The word that there that's used for, for forgetting means this. It no longer has effect in your life. Amen. So when God forgets your sins, and hear this. If you are in Christ today, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are in Christ today, the Bible says that God has forgotten your sins. That doesn't mean that He has some kind of weird divine amnesia or He can't remember all the bad things that you did. All your rebellion against Him. It's not that. It means that He no longer counts it against you. It no longer has any bearing on your standing before Him. It no longer has to captivate your life because it no longer captivates your relationship with God. It has no bearing on you anymore. That's what it means to forget what lies behind. And for some in this room, you desperately need to forget what lies behind you. Because it's keeping you from running the race. But for others, but for others, it's not necessarily the past that trips us up. He says, forgetting what lies behind and it's both. It's two things. Not just forgetting what lies behind, but and straining forward. This is every muscle tensed. This is straining forward with every ounce of energy that we have. Straining forward to what lies ahead. But here's what we do. Maybe it's not the past that's tripping you up. Maybe it's the people around you that are tripping you up. Maybe it's that person in your workplace that gets on your everlasting last nerve. Maybe it's the person in your own home that's tripping you up. You say, well, what do I do if the people around me are tripping me up? So here's what we like to get caught up in. We like to get caught up in comparisons. So instead of running the race that Christ has set before me, I try to run your race. And you're a little faster than I am and you're a little farther ahead than I am. And so I'm trying to match your step instead of running the race that Christ has set before me and trying to match your step. Guess what I do? I stumble and I fall because I was never meant to run your race. And comparisons rule so much of our lives. We want to. We look to others and we say, man, they've got a nicer house than I have. They have a better car than I have. Their, their wife is prettier than mine is. They have all these things that I desire. And even spiritually we can get in that place to begin to compete with others. And I want you to understand something this morning. There is a competition in the Christian life. It is not with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And somebody in this room needs to hear that this morning. Because you have been living your life, comparing yourself to other believers, and always feeling like you come up short, or or even more dangerously, pridefully going, Well, I'm better off than so and so. And that is not this race. It's fixing your eyes on what lies ahead. We'll get there. We'll get to what the goal is with this singular focus. So he gives us four instructions. How do I how do I race with a forward focus? First of all, you race with patient perseverance. We find that there in verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 13. Race with patient perseverance. Brothers, he says. He's talking to the church here. I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead, I press on. There's this picture of perseverance of running forward in the Christian life, of continuing to press on regardless of the obstacles, of understanding that the goal is worth it. Here's why so many fall out of the race. Here's why so many walk away from the faith. And he's going to address those who've walked away from the faith in this next paragraph. Here's why so many fall short of the goal line because they don't realize the value of the prize. One of our elders was sharing with me about a, a basketball tournament he was in recently. Worked hard all day, three-on-three three tournaments, sprained his ankle, and they, they, they were pressing all day long to try to win this tournament. And he comes to the end, and the prize was a t-shirt. And I don't know about you, but I don't need another t-shirt. At the end of this race is a prize beyond all prizes. We're going to get there. I don't don't want you to misunderstand what the prize is this morning. But one reason so many fall short in the race is they don't realize the value of the prize. That forward focus, that patient perseverance pressing on, as he says, will take you there. Next, he encourages us. He encourages us to go to this place where we begin to run and to race for the real reward. For the real reward. What is that reward? <laughs> He's talking about here. I press on. I'm going to focus on one thing. What is the reward? And we've already talked about it last week. If you were here last Sunday, the reward is given in verses 10 and 11. This was the reward for the Apostle Paul. He said, this is my goal, that I may know him. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the goal. The goal of the Christian life is not to be a morally good person, to join the good boys club or the nice girls club. That is not the goal of the Christian life. If that's the, if that's the gospel that you were sold, trade it in for something better. And the goal of the Christian life is not to measure up in the standards of our society. If that's the gospel that you receive, trade it in for something better. And I want to say one more thing. The goal of the Christian life is not to get to heaven. Here's where we get confused. You say, wait a minute. Yeah, that's not the goal? No, this is the goal that I may know him. Yeah. Let me say something that a dear a preacher that I've loved for years has said many times, and I want to say it to you this morning. If you don't want Jesus, you want nothing to do with heaven. Heaven will not be your eternal golf course, your eternal fishing trip, your eternal shopping trip. I'll put that in for the ladies if you want. Heaven is focused around Jesus Christ. Day and night, multitudes worshiping Him. Praising him because of his work at the cross. You go to Revelation chapter 5 and you'll see this picture of what heaven is like. Multitudes from every tribe, tongue, and nation in chapter 7 they come together and they're worshiping, and they're not just worshiping any old God, they're worshiping Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. They're glorying in the cross, and he is the focus, the center of heaven. There is nothing greater than him, he is the prize. And if you don't understand how Christ is the prize, here's the reason you've not yet seen him. You've not yet understood the greatness of who he is and what he has done for you. You see, we so often think of heaven as a place that will be very centered around ourselves. you live even hear folks say, all the greatest things of this life, that's what heaven will be all about. All the greatest things of this life, that'll be what heaven's all about. See, that falls short because there's something greater than this life. And when you live for him, when he is the prize, it makes all the difference. So race for the real reward. The next instruction is to race with an amenable attitude. What I mean by that is is, is a willing spirit. I mean, a, a teachable personality. In verse 15, he says, so let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Now, the Apostle Paul is not being snarky here and saying, well, if you don't agree with me, God will slap you across the face a few times and you'll get straight. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is, okay, guys, if there are some places where your understanding of the gospel is a little bit lacking, you're just a a little off in a few areas. And he's not saying you're off in left field somewhere with a false gospel. But he said, if there's some areas where you're struggling, some things that you're, that you're, you're finding hard to understand, if you've not yet uh, are getting, gotten to a place of maturity where you're fully focused on Christ, he's saying, here's what I know God's going to be faithful to do. It came from chapter 1. He who began a good work in you, he'll do what? He'll complete it, right? That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I know, I'm trusting in that the God who saved you will also sanctify you. I'm trusting that the God who invited you in the race will also give you the power to persevere to the end. I'm trusting that the God who gave you some knowledge of the gospel will also fulfill that knowledge. I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will be your teacher. By the way, that's a good thing. You know, Jesus said when he ascended back into heaven, I've got to go away i got to exit this place so that someone better can come. You go, who could be better than Jesus? Well, he's saying better in terms of this age that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, would come as our teacher, would dwell in the people of God, and would reveal to us all truth. The only reason you understand anything from the Word of God is not because you have a pastor who tries to preach it. The only reason that any of us Understand anything from the Word of God is because the Holy Spirit gives us revelation. Amen. The Holy Spirit opens blind eyes and deaf ears. The Holy Spirit takes stone cold hearts and transforms them into hearts of flesh that beat for Him. The Holy Spirit empowers you for this race. And so we race with this teachable spirit. I love what Kent Hughes said. He said, the more we come to know Christ, it's so true the more we will come to sense our need to grow. When we imagine that we have arrived, stagnation sets in. Spiritual dissatisfaction is a blessed state. So I want to say a word about this danger of thinking we've arrived there is a deeply prideful in you. it was present in Paul's day. Apparently there were some in the church who were teaching this idea of perfectionism that you could actually reach the goal before your last day. Let me just say to his church, if anybody, if anybody was going to reach the goal, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And he's the guy who says, I've not yet attained it. He is in a Roman jail cell chained between two centurions. He is devoted the last 30 years of his life to being God's missionary to the Gentiles. He has planted churches all over the known world at that time. He started the first church at Philippi, the first church in Europe that had ever begun in in the whole continent of Europe was the church at Philippi. He started that. He was the man. He was God's man. He was a powerful man of God. And he said, 30 years in, possibly facing his death at the hands of the Roman authorities, he said, I'm not yet reached the finish line.'" So beware. Beware of the spiritual pride in which we begin to think that we've arrived. If you are living in that place of spiritual dissatisfaction, praise God. If you are yearning for more of Him, praise God. If you feel deficient in your understanding of the Scriptures, praise God and pray that He would enlighten if you are wrestling with how to share the gospel and wishing that you were more proficient at sharing the gospel, praise God and press on. But do not think the danger is that we would think that we have arrived at some platform, that we have arrived at the finish line before our final day. And that is a dangerous, prideful place that will only be a place of destruction. So instead, we follow the instructions of verse 16. He says, race with what I would call it, a yearning, yielding. There's this tension in the Christian life. I'm straining forward, and yet I'm resting in Him. You say, how in the world do I do both of those things? It's only in Christ. Amen. It's only in Christ that that makes any sense whatsoever. Some of you are, are smiling in this room because you know what I'm talking about. There is a straining forward and a resting at the same time. There is a yearning and a yielding. And in verse 16 he says, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So that's saying two things to us. Number one, don't try to run somebody else's race. We're going to talk about it in a minute. It's good to have mentors. good to have those that are being models for us. But run the race that was set before you. You don't have to follow somebody else's steps. The only steps you need to be walking in are Jesus' steps. And he'll empower you for that. So run your race. So why did Paul do all of this? Why? What was the purpose? 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Do it all. There's the one focus. Do it all for the sake of this gospel. That I may share with them and in Christ's church. I may share with the church and its blessings. Do you not know, he says, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. You say, well, why would I want to run if only one's going to get the prize? Here it is. This is so sweet. Because it was Christ himself who obtained the prize for you. He obtained your inheritance at the cross. He is the one who invites you into the race. And here's the truth. Here's the truth. When you get your eyes off the other runners around you and you stop with the complaints and with the comparisons, and you start running with your eyes fixed on Christ, when you get into that zone, here's what you'll find. You'll find that what is waiting for you at the finish line is more than worthwhile. And you're not going to get it just because you beat someone else there. You're going to get it because the one who beat you there obtained it for you at the cross. And will willingly share with you the riches of God's glory. That's what we're talking about. But there's a basis here that I need you to see before we finish this morning. There's an entry fee to this race, if you will. And it's bound up in what I would call the reality. We talked about the race. Let's talk about the reality here. Paul says one thing I know. Here's the truth of the Christian life. Being is the necessary source of doing. You behave the way that you do because you believe a certain way. You act the way that you do because you think a certain way. That's the reality, really not just of the Christian life. That's really the reality of every life. It's not often realized. And so as we think about this race, this doing, we need to understand. He comes in the next paragraph to say, here's the basis for running this race. There's an entry fee that needs to be paid. There's something that will prohibit you from running in this race if you're not a part. You see, the the picture he's going to lay out for us is this. It's a picture of citizenship. And and, and you may wonder, what in the world does that have to do with running a race? Because you see, the Philippians understood it very clearly. In those days, in the days of the early Olympic Games in, in Greece... The only way that you could participate in the games was if you were a citizen of Greece. If you were not Greek, no games for you. I know it's very different than today. Olympic Games, people from all over the world come. and They compete nation against nation. That was not the original Olympic Games. In the original games, if you were not Greek, there was no games for you. No matter how fast you were, no matter how good of an athlete you were, if you were not a Greek, there was no entry into the games for you. You would not be allowed to run. And so he takes that picture and he says, here's the one thing I know. I've got a new citizenship. Look at verse 20 with me. In verse 20 he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. What is Paul saying? He's saying this. That citizenship determines our central focus. You see, as long as you believe that your primary citizenship is a citizen of this world, a citizen of this nation, a citizen of this county, As long as you are living in such a way that your mind is focused on your citizenship in this world, you will live for the things of this world. Because citizenship determines our central focus. But Paul says, this is what I understand, this is what I know. That our citizenship, those who are in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. He rescued you. At His death across, the cross, He rescued you from citizenship in this world that was only going to lead you on the pathway to death and destruction. This world is passing away. And what He's trying to say to us is that beyond being an American, beyond being a resident of Breckenridge County, even beyond being a member of your own earthly family, there stands a higher citizenship. And he purchased your passport into this citizenship at his cross. You were a citizen of this world bound for condemnation because of your rebellion against a Holy God. And Holy God in the person of His Son Jesus Christ stepped into this earthly world and He lived perfectly and died in the place of sinners so that not only that your sins could be forgiven, that's, that's huge, I don't want to diminish that, but not only that your sins could be forgiven, but that you could be a citizen of His kingdom. Amen. It's not just getting your ticket to heaven punched, folks. It's living as citizens of a new kingdom. I love how Francis Chan talked about this. He said, we should be giving the world a glimpse of what's coming in the future. We can show them what the king is like and what the kingdom is like. People should look at the words of the, and deeds of believers and say, I love this. You aren't from around here, are you? Anybody ever heard that? Us Kentucky folk, we hear that often. I remember one year, uh, we went on a, a trip at, with, our, with our youth. This has been years ago before I was at this church. We went to New York City. You know that old Pace commercial? New York City? Yeah. Went to New York City, and we were, we were down in the heart of New York City. This is the only time in my life I've ever been in a Starbucks. It's the only, one, it's the only place there was where we were, um, that we were, we were going into. And we went into this Starbucks. I'm not a coffee drinker. Sorry to offend any of you that are. But I have many other addictions. That's not one. But the, we went into that Starbucks, and I remember the, they call them baristas, I guess, behind the table there. Everything's fancy there. It's too fancy for me. But I went in there, and I remember this guy saying to us, he said, y'all aren't from around here, are you? Mocking our accent. (laughs) No, sir, we're not. We're here on a mission trip. We've got to share a little bit with him. But I remember those words. And there's a place where that stings just a little bit because you know there's there's a demeaning tone to those words. And I want you to understand, believer, there's a reality when you're walking with Christ, when you are exercising your citizenship in heaven, when you're not living for the things of this world, the world looks at you and says, you're not from around here, are you? You see, there ought to be the thickness of a heavenly accent in our words. There ought to be an ordering of our economy according to heavenly principles that changes the way we spend our money. There ought to be an arranging of our calendar according to eternal priorities that the world looks at and says, well, that's just kind of odd. You must not be from around here. And Peter says, no, we are aliens and strangers in this world. There ought to be a disjointedness when we look at our culture, not just because it's going to hell in a handbasket, but because we know that we have been brought into a new kingdom and we're living for that kingdom. But here's why we don't have the joy of the gospel, folks. Because we are still operating so much in a dual and divided citizenship. We have one eye on the things of this world and one eye on the things of the kingdom. And I'm not just saying it to you. I'm preaching it to myself. I see this in myself. This divided heart that James warns about. And we think it's okay because that's how we see so much American Christianity. Come to church and do your church thing and then go live in the world just as the rest of the world. And they don't hear our accent. They don't see that we live any differently. And we won't hear the words, you aren't from around here, are you? Because they assume that you are. And so there's two mindsets laid out here and I'll run through these fairly quickly. There's a heavenly mindset and earthly mindset in these last few verses. I want to say two things about each one. First of all, the heavenly mindset described here, it requires godly mentors. Here's the reality, church. We don't know how to live in the kingdom of God. You were born into the kingdom of this world, and sin has infected every part of your being. And when Christ rescues you to the cross and pays the price for that sin, redeems your past and draws you into fellowship with him, the issue is so many is we don't know how to walk with Jesus. We don't know how to run the race. And we need coaches in this. If you say, yes, I'm looking to Jesus. Yes, that's, that's, that is good and right and necessary. We'll come back there. But he also says, look in verse 17, Brothers, church, Join in imitating me. This is not a prideful statement. He's saying, I'm trying to set the pace for you. I'm trying to show you how to run. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. But here's what we do. In America, we love our lone ranger Christianity. I want you to understand very clearly, you were never meant to run this race alone. Vital relationships. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Somebody a little farther down the road than you. It's vital. It's vital. For your growth in Christ. And your continuing in the race. So many have fallen by the wayside of the past. Because they tried to run it alone. Keep the balance here. I'm not saying. I'm not saying look to others. and, And start going into that place of complaining and comparisons. We want to stay away from that, but we also don't want to enter into the other danger, which is running alone in such a way that we have no one to run with us. Here's what I, here's what, I've never been much of a runner, but I, I became a bicycle rider a few years ago. And here's what I found. I can ride 10 miles a whole lot faster when I've got some brothers with me than I can by myself. Now, I don't fully understand that, but I know that it's true that I can ride faster Farther, faster, when I have folks with me than I can by myself. And the same is true in the Christian life. And I also find that if there comes that day when my feet slip from the pedals and I crash on the pavement, there will be somebody there to help me out. But for far too many of us, we ride the race alone. Hebrews 13, remember your leaders. Those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Every Paul needs a Timothy. Every Timothy needs a Paul. Who are you in vital relationship with? Who are you running this race with? If you can't put names in those categories, do two things. Pray to the living God that He would put those people in your path and then go and pursue them. Pray as if everything depends on God and then work as if everything depends on you. And you'll find that you'll run much farther, much faster. So the heavenly mindset requires Godly mentors. The earthly mindset rejects the cross. Look at verse 18. He's he's weeping He's weeping over a group of folks, he says. There's there's many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. I don't know exactly who he's talking about here, but the sense seems to be this. That he's referring to those who had once made a profession of faith in Jesus. Perhaps they'd been baptized in the church, they prayed the sinner's prayer, they walked the aisle, and they they were involved for a time, but then maybe life happened, and and nobody came running after them when life happened and pulled them away from the church, and so they were out in the world and now they were walking as enemies of the cross. Or maybe that addiction flared up again, and they weren't in vital relationships that would help them to continue in the race, and so they fell by the wayside. And they began, and you see so many examples of this. John talks about it in his letters. He says, there are some that, that, that are not of us. And how do we know they weren't of us because they didn't continue with us. Here's how you know. Here's how you know that you know that you know that you're in Christ. I know there are many churches who teach against assurance of the faith. I will teach assurance of the faith to my dying day for this reason. My assurance is in him, not in myself. But here's how you know assurance. Assurance is proved by perseverance. You say, how do I know that I'm really saved? And I would answer you this way. Are you still walking with Jesus? You say, well, I don't remember the day uh, or the hour or the, or, the, or the moment when I came to know Christ as my Savior. See, we're so focused on the point of salvation. When did you pray the prayer? When did you get done to the baptistry? When did you become a member of the church? All those things are past realities. And for some of us, we need to forget those things for this purpose. Because they're holding us back from running the race. Somebody comes to me and says, how do I know that I'm really saved? I want to say, are you walking with Jesus today? Not so much concerned as what happened to you 10, 15, 20 years ago. Now you can look back and you you can begin to see, wow, man, I look a whole lot more like Jesus today than I did 10 years ago. That's a great mark of perseverance. That's something that we can look to not to get stuck in, but to rejoice in and then press on. But so many get stuck in this place. And he's saying, there's a group here. There's a group here that they they once professed Christ. You all know folks like this. He's weeping over them. They once professed Christ. They were baptized in our churches. Their names went on our roll books. And now they're nowhere to be found. And their lives. Their lives. Look, as Unchristian. as anybody. They walk as enemies of the cross. Here's his description. Their end is destruction. We'll come back to that. Their God is their belly, meaning they live for themselves. They glory in their shame. They celebrate what God despises. And their minds are so unearthly things. That's, That's the crux of it. It's the mindset. Instead of fixing their eyes on Christ, and their minds upon heavenly things. Their minds are set on earthly things. It's 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the earthly mindset rejects the cross, and the earthly mindset ends in destruction. And I want you to see... I want you to see Paul. He is weeping. I tell you now, even with tears of these who once professed faith in Christ, now they're walking as enemies of the cross and their end is destruction. And Paul is not saying that's what they deserve because they turned away from Jesus. No, he is weeping. He is weeping over them saying their end will be destruction. Now he's not talking here uh, about some twisted reality where they lost their salvation. That's not the picture here. The reality of assurance of our faith is you cannot lose a salvation that you never had in the first place. And as John says, by the fact that they showed they, were, they showed they were not of us because they didn't continue with us. Perseverance. Perseverance is the proof of assurance. And he's weeping over those who did not persevere in the faith, who fell away for any variety of reasons, who, who turned back to the things of this world. He's weeping over them and saying their end is destruction. Oliver Wendell Holmes, in a famous quote that probably many of us know, he said, some people are so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. I think there's a greater danger that was identified by Leonard Ravenhill. He said, the brutal, soul-shaking truth is that we are so earthly-minded, we're of no heavenly use. That's where we dwell, folks. That's the danger of Americanized Christianity. Have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of this world. Have a divided heart have divided intentions, and Paul says, one thing I do, one thing I know. And if we will do that, we will find that this heavenly mindset ends in resurrection. That's the last verse there. We are waiting, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, By the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. We are looking to the King and praying that His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are straining toward the goal, not of our best life now, but of the life that He claimed for us at the cross. We are straining forward with all of our effort, knowing that it's His power at work within us. We are running the race as citizens of a new kingdom, of a greater kingdom, knowing that resurrection has been promised to those who put their faith in Christ. And so we run. But you know, folks, running gets hard. Life gets weary. Difficulties arise on every side. And we need to be reminded once again of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, I imagine those who've gone before us and were cheering us on in this race of faith. I, I imagine my godly grandfather who invested the grace of God in my life. Let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so close. Let us put the past Behind us, let us set aside our focus on people and complaining and comparing ourselves with them. And let us run. Let us run with endurance this race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is waiting at the finish line. And He is beckoning you to come. And He is empowering you by His Spirit. He's saying, press on, brother. Strain forward, sister. Keep moving. He's saying there there is no retirement in the Christian life. You have not arrived until you arrive in glory. You have not reached the finish line until your last day. So keep moving. Keep going. We have created this retirement culture in our country and it seeped into our churches. Well I paid my dues, now I get to sit back until Jesus takes me home. No. No. You keep pressing on until the day when you stand face to face with the prize. He is Jesus. But we need godly examples. And I want to leave you with one this morning. I heard this this week I had the privilege. I had the privilege of of joining with 10,000 other pastors and church leaders at the Yum Center in Louisville. We made the Yum Center into a church this week. And it was not a religion dedicated to basketball, by the way. Amen. It's a powerful thing to hear 10,000 people with just a dude on a piano leading us in, in song, him and his 10,000-person choir. That, As my old pastor used to say, if that don't get your fire started, your wood's wet. <laughs> and so... But there was a story shared that I wanted to share with you as we finish today because we get, we get distracted. We get discouraged. We start complaining and comparing ourselves with others and we need godly examples both in our lives and we also need godly examples from the past. Paul saying, imitate me, look to me. This is a man who literally gave his head for the gospel. The day came when the Romans beheaded him because of his faith. We need godly examples and one of those godly examples was a man named John Rogers. In the year 1555, John Rogers was pastoring a church and pastoring in such a bold way that the leaders of that day who who despised his view of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. By the way, that's what we believe as well. There was a day in 1555 that he was despised for preaching the very thing that we preach freely today. John Rogers had a wife and ten kids. Nine of those were born, and one was on the way when he was imprisoned because of his proclamation of the same gospel that we proclaim today. In January of 1555, he was brought by Bishop Stephen Gardner of Winchester, and Gardner declared Rogers a heretic. Because he was denying the change of substance and the communion, bread and wine. Basically, he was denying the gospel that the popular church was preaching in that day. And so they called him a heretic. Then, because Parliament had outlawed heresy and clarified its punishment, Rogers was condemned to be burned at the stake. The treatment of the man was unnecessarily cruel. John requested a meeting with his wife, and he was denied. He was asked to recant, that means to reject his beliefs, and this he denied. But such stalemates and discourtesies were short-lived, so on February the 4th, 1555, Rogers was marched to the stake. His children joined the crowd lining the streets as he walked to his death. His youngest child was there at his mother's breast, whom he had never met. All who knew the gravity of this day encouraged him to go with strength. And indeed, John's final conversation was a witness in and of itself. As he was being tied to the stake upon which he would be burned for his faith in the gospel, the sheriff, the very one who had denied his request for a meeting with his wife, he asked him, Will you now revoke your evil opinions? And Rogers answered, That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. You are a heretic then, declared the sheriff. That shall be known at the day of judgment, Rogers assured him. I will never pray for you, the sheriff finished. By the way, in those days, they believed that you could pray someone into heaven after they were dead. There's still some belief like that roaming around in our day. Sheriff finished. I will never pray for you and Roger's last recorded words were, that I will pray for you. And moments later, the flames arose that took his life from this earth. And yet he could stand strong because his life was hidden with Christ in God. You see, that's the race, folks. That's the race. Christ is the prize. Your citizenship has been bought at the cross. With that singular focus, you can run. Even if it means that on your last day, your wife and children see you walk to a stake to be burned as a criminal. You can rejoice in the God who will cause all earthly sufferings to be turned into an eternal weight of glory. And the Bible says that now John Rogers, among all the many other martyrs down through the ages, that he has the front row seat of the throne of God as he pleads for the return of Christ. As he asks the Lord, how long, O Lord, until your kingdom will come in power? You see, it'll change the way we live if the main thing becomes the one thing. So what's your one thing? Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we are a people of divided heart. We are a people who hedge our bets by putting a little of our focus in one basket and a little in another. when You have beckoned us to put all of our eggs in the basket of this Gospel. And we look to a man like John Rogers and we see what appears to us to be a supernatural faith. And yet His was meant to be the experience of every one redeemed by the blood of Christ at the cross. That his experience was meant to be, his courage in the faith was meant to be, his steadfastness in the gospel was meant to be that which would come to us as a result of our citizenship in your kingdom. So God, we pray in repentance that you would draw us away from this place of dual citizenship. That you would draw us away from this place where we seek to live with one foot in your kingdom and one foot in the kingdom of this world. That you would give us the singular focus upon the One who gave His life for us. We thank You for the singular focus of Christ. Without it, without it, we would be condemned forever. But because of the joy set before Him, the rescuing of many souls, because of what He was looking forward to, the glorifying of God for all eternal ages, because of this, we now rest in Him even as we race. So Lord, I pray that you would help us today to examine, to examine our one thing. That we might be able to stand with those like John Rogers who say one thing I do and one thing I know. The goal and source and substance for me is Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, enable us to walk in that place. By the power of your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, we're going to share this final song. This is really more of a prayer. We invite you into this prayer, not just to speak the words, but to enter into the reality. Maybe you have not yet entered into this race. We want you to understand, entry into the race was purchased for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you will look to Him by faith, He invites you to become a citizen of His kingdom. And He will no wise cast you out. He will only draw you deeper in. So we invite you to that today, but for some, I know you're just discouraged in the race. Just as you looked to Him when you began the race, so look to Him now. Draw your strength from Him. and your confidence from Him. Let Him alone be the one thing that both sustains you and leads you to your final day. We invite you to that today as we sing the song. You respond, Kent and I will be here at the front if we can help you and serve you in any way. That would be our honor. And Lord, this is what we rejoice in today. That you purchased us at the cross. You paid every bit of the price. And we rejoice in that today even as we draw near in relationship to one another. Even as we seek to press on in this race. And God, I pray that you would not allow us to be tripped up by our past or by other people but that we would press on to the goal. That we would fix our eyes on Christ. And that you would be glorified in us as we run to you make this our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Let's be dismissed.